Uh, the storyline in Shakespeare's Hamlet, I'm assuming, is fairly well known. Hamlet, of course, is the prince of Denmark, whose father has just passed away. But Hamlet's father returns to him as a ghost to tell his son that his death was no accident. Actually, he had been poisoned by a political rival, his own brother, Hamlet's uncle, who now sat on the throne. And so Hamlet hatches this plan to do an investigation of the matter inside the royal castle. He will pretend that he is crazy. So, in other words, he knows that if he can convince people to write him off as being nuts, they'll let their guard down. And he'll be able to find the proof that he needs that, in fact, his father's death was planned. In a conversation that uh, Hamlet has with one of the king's advisors, Polonius, Hamlet's true intention are suspected, and Polonius utters the very famous line, though this be madness, there is method in it. <clears throat> you ever heard that expression? Someone will say, look, there's method in my madness. And they're saying it to say that when other people may see what I'm doing and think it's crazy, but really doing it makes perfect sense in order to get where I want to go. It reminded me of one of my favorite, really top 10 movies I, I, I watch. It's 1997's The Game, starring Michael Douglas. The main character sort of opens up with this being entered into this game that's very elaborate, uh, set up by his brother, from whom, with whom he is estranged. Well, the game begins, but the whole thing, uh, Douglas doesn't even realize that it's happening while the game is going on. But all kinds of strange and inexplicable, completely maddening things start to happen. And even as he watches things sort of spiral out of control, the movie looks like it's going to end, sadly, with Michael Douglas's death by suicide jumping off of a building. But as he crashes through the glass ceiling below the ledge of the building, he lands dead in the center of an X on a huge filled air pad. And as he gets up, he starts to look around, and he, he sees everybody in his life, including those that he thought were against him, and they're all standing up and celebrating his, his new perspective on life with a giant party. But my favorite scene is the very last scene, because as the party is over, the movie's love interest heads out the door for another assignment, and Douglas follows her out and asks if she wants to get coffee, to which she agrees. But all of a sudden, as he climbs in the taxi, he pauses for a moment and kind of looks around him, clearly wondering, is this part of the game? And suddenly the credits start to roll and the movie is over. I always love that because what happened to Michael Douglas's character in that movie is, is he saw the method in the madness. And it wasn't a burden to him. Actually, what it did was it made the world around him electric with significance because he's thought that there just might be an invisible hand moving through it all. Look, we're wrapping up our series this uh, morning through the book of Acts that I entitled Jesus Continued. And I think that's a, a, a title that fits not only the, the, the ending of the book, but also the, the entire takeaway from the whole book. Because these last seven or eight chapters, they really don't finish in the way in which you would expect books of this length to finish. You know, in, in uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul would go on to say later in his life that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The last third of the book of Acts lets you know why he probably thinks that way. John Stott actually suggests this is the overarching lesson of the book as a whole, that Luke is trying to get his readers to see the events that happened in Paul's life as awful as they were 
as drawing toward an ending that only God could have orchestrated. It's supposed to lead us, in a sense, to stand in awe of God's intricate design, of his unfolding plan for his church. Actually, as I'm sure you all remember, in the very first sermon in this series, I mentioned that the book of Acts in many ways is just a story about God. He's the one who's building his church. He's the one who is fixing the world and setting it to rights. It's a very God-centered work. And the reason why we need to see this is because there seems to be an inevitability to the struggles that every Christian faces when we see the work, the, the, the events around us descend into madness and we think to ourselves, God, is there any method in your madness? I want to unpack these in these last three chapters under three headings here. First of all, we want to see God's plan in the chaos. We want to see God's plan in the suffering. And we want to see God's plan in the moment. First of all, let's look at God's plan in the chaos. Start in that first passage that Wayne read from chapter 27. The whole chapter is devoted with, with some very uh, weirdly specific detail to a shipwreck that Paul suffers on his way to Rome. Now, how did he get here? Well, a little background. If you go back to Acts 21, you'll find that Paul is insistent that he needs to go back to Jerusalem. But that actually makes all of his friends quite sad and quite upset because they know how dangerous it is for him to go back to Jerusalem. And of course, sure shooting, as soon as he arrives in Jerusalem, the Jewish leadership has him arrested for the awful prospect of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and telling them that they had a place in the kingdom of God. Wrong. And so they throw him in jail. But Paul pulls kind of a fast one on the Roman governor by appealing his case to Caesar, which was a right that every Roman citizen had. So yes, Paul is actually going to make it to Rome at last, but he's going to do so in the shackles of imprisonment. Pretty crafty move on Paul's part because he was so determined, fixated through this part, to make it to Rome. He had to make it to Rome. You want to know why? Because Jesus told him he had to go there. If you go back to chapter 23, verse 11, Paul has just endured this grueling trial before this Jerusalem council where he was almost killed. But Paul has a vision in that moment of Jesus who comes down and says to him, quote, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now look, let that sink in for a second. There was nobody who was more clear on what Jesus had planned for their life than the Apostle Paul. From Jesus' own mouth, Paul knew what his destiny was. He understood the meaning of his life. And yet event after event seemed calculated almost to make that goal impossible. Paul wanted to sail straight from Jerusalem to Rome. Instead, he is arrested in Jerusalem. He gets humiliated before, before these court appearances, whether they're religious or civil. He's briefly imprisoned in Caesarea, chapter 23. He's threatened with assassination by the Jews. In our passage, we find that he nearly drowns in the Mediterranean. At one point during the voyage, the sailors consider killing him. And if that's not enough, he gets bitten by a poisonous snake throughout the entire journey. My guess is you would have tried hard and been hard-pressed to find someone who endured more chaos in their life than the, than the Apostle Paul. Mind you, all the while living directly in the center of Jesus' will for his life. Doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. Now, if that didn't make you uncomfortable, you're not listening. 
How does a Christian make sense of that? Well, in order to try to, I want to add one more piece of this puzzle that'll help. Because there just has to be significance in the fact that all of these chapters wind up with Paul being thrown into the sea. It's a big deal for Jewish people, and you've heard me mention this before. Jewish people were not big fans of ocean waters, mostly because a lot of their cultural history suggested that the sea was bad. Uh, Genesis 1 described the world's beginnings from outside of a chaotic primordial sea. Later on, the world is destroyed in Genesis chapter 9 in the days of Noah by the sea. Finally, the escaping Jews from Egypt are trapped by the sea as their captors come to pursue them in Exodus 14. It's a little wonder then that when you get to the book of Revelation, the apostle John, when he sees the new heavens and the new earth, will say that there, there is no sea. Revelation 21.1. What's the point? The sea to the Jewish mind was a picture of chaos. And when Paul is subjected to this excruciating journey that dramatically culminates in Paul's very submersion into the sea, like literally he has to swim to shore, Luke sees all this happening is like, that's familiar. There is spiritual significance to what's happening here. And it's simply this. God is the one who is providentially controlling even the most chaotic events of his people's lives so that he can achieve the purpose that he intends for it. He is still at the wheel. Now look, I want to I press this further in the next point. But let's pause for a second and deal with an objection that people oftentimes feel at this moment. Because a lot of people don't like how closely we bring God next to our chaos. And they ask what I think is a perfectly legitimate, albeit philosophical question, is God the one who's behind my suffering? Did he do it? You can even hear this when people go through bad times. They'll say, what God, what did I do to deserve this? Why is this happening to me? They're looking for reasons. And for many people, they're looking for reasons to walk away from a relationship with God because they see him as being the ultimate cause for the evil that's going on in their lives. Well, John Newton, English Puritan and author of Amazing Grace, wrote a letter to a parishioner uh, who actually asked this, almost this exact question. And I thought that Newton's response to this lady was quite brilliant. Listen to what he says. He says, God is no more the author of sin than the sun is the cause of ice. But it is the nature of water to congeal into ice when the sun's influence is suspended to a certain degree. So there is sin enough in the hearts of men to make the earth the very image of hell and to prove that men are no better than incarnate devils were he to suspend his influence and restraint. Sometimes, in some instances, he is pleased to suspend it considerably. And so far as he does, human nature quickly appears in all of its true colors. That is a great perspective. It's a Christian perspective. Because what he's saying is, when someone complains, why is God creating the chaos? They are assuming in that, that if God would just leave us alone, we would manage our world just fine. But see, Newton knows that man has an ultimate commitment to a godless universe, which is what the Bible calls sin. And what that means, among a whole long list of other things, is that left to ourselves, we would race into the chaos. 
and destroy ourselves and each other, by the way. Matter of fact, the only reason why that hasn't happened already is because God is restraining that inertia that's at the heart of every human being. That's a better perspective, I think. You are not a neutral individual. You're not a neutral party in the midst of my suffering. Now look, granted, that's a philosophical perspective, but I want to deal secondly with the personal question. Why does God allow us to go through these things? So we see God's plan in the chaos. What about God's plan in the suffering? Well, I want to ask this question because there were certain constraints that were put upon me in putting together a preaching schedule that a book of 28 chapters sort of required. Because if you think about it, two-thirds of the book, if you only had the first two-thirds of the book, you might see the book of Acts as being um, somewhat, shall we say, triumphalistic. Think about this for a second. As the gospel marches through chapters 2 through 20, what do you see? You see Pentecost, big victory. You see them healing a beggar in chapter 3. You see the gospel defended before the, the, the religious council in chapter 4 and 5. You see this extraordinarily successful mission to Samaria. You see the conversion of Saul, the conversion of Cornelius in chapter 10. You see the planting of this amazingly successful church in Antioch in chapter 11. Paul's miraculous escape from prison, prison in chapter 12. And then you have these early successes of all of Paul's missionary journeys up, right up to approaching chapter 20. <laughs> so that if you stopped right there, you'd be tempted to think that the takeaway from the book of Acts was something like this. Hey, if you follow Jesus and believe his gospel, you can expect for spiritual victory to follow spiritual victory for the rest of your life. Nothing can stand in your way. But when you reach chapter 21, what happens? The narrative gets dark. Bad things start to happen. They close down around Paul. And remember, Paul knows that it is Jesus who has specifically called him to do this work. But in following that lead, he ends up arrested and he ends up losing his freedom. Hmm. So the question is, how in the world do you make sense of that? And at this point, I do realize that it's a very Christian thing to do. Nothing that I disagree with at all for people to play the card that goes a little bit like this. Well, look, Christians suffer because in a way, it's kind of good for us. It helps us grow. We learn things that we would never have learned if we weren't actually suffering. Lord willing, in the spring, we're going to study all the way through the book of Romans. And when we get to chapter 5, we're going to hear Paul say something like this in verses 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So yes, there's good things to be gained from our suffering. But here's my thing. I don't think that actually is an adequate explanation for how it feels when we're going through suffering. Because I think what Luke is trying to say is something even more profound. And you can see it in the way that he structured these chapters. By placing a story about God's deliverance through the sea, what Luke is saying is, is there are evil forces at work in the world. There are malevolent spirits that are doing all that they can. Demonic activity that is attempting to restrain and thwart God's plan in the universe. Whether it's the forces of water in the shipwreck or the evil schemes created by man, the Bible comes with us full of stories that there is a devil who is attempting to thwart God's work by making his people suffer. It's the story. 
But the message of the book of Acts is, is that God obstructs those purposes every single time. Every time. And weaves them into the way he wants it to. Now bear with me for a second. This is, if you're only exposed to it now, a very Jewish way of looking at the world. A Jewish worldview would have seen that behind all of the destructive machinery of man are actual, personal, malevolent spirits who are inspiring, pushing, tempting, even at times we believe orchestrating attempts to pull God's plan away from its foreordained end, which is, of course, his ultimate glory. And being aware of this influence, being, being in, having a knowledge that it's happening, has always been a key feature of Christian maturity. It's always been a key feature to look at my suffering and saying, to some degree, the chaos around me is the function of someone out there who's trying to thwart God's plan. You've not made full sense of your struggle until you acknowledge that reality, that there's a spiritual battle that goes on. Now, my guess is I've made a room full of Presbyterians uncomfortable. Because most of us will say, well, I have a sort of a generalized view of this idea that there are weird spirits out there, but now we're talking about it kind of personally, and that seems a little bit weird to attach these things to the demons. Now, hear me. Some of that is very true. I have seen many of us at certain times when we go through struggles become what I would call uh, overly um, paranoid about the work of malevolent spirits to the point where we're trying to cast out demons out of like stalled cars or, or out of my child's bedroom at night or something like that. Christians actually don't process that spiritual world in that way, mostly because we understand that our foe on this side of the cross is a defeated foe. And God is showing throughout how over and over again he's going to take these difficult experiences and he's going to weave a tapestry that ultimately is going to bring about something that you and I even right now can't imagine, that we could never see. This is how a Christian thinks. <laughs> and it reminded me of Gandalf in his conversation with Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. They're having a conversation about the creature uh, Gollum who not so secretly is trying to follow their band into Mordor in hopes of grabbing the ring again. Well, Frodo at one point in his conversation with, with um, Gandalf says that he wishes he could kill uh, Gollum and just be rid of him once, and all, once for all. Gandalf, of course, warns him not to be too hasty in doling out justice. You don't want to be that guy, Frodo, I promise you. But then at one moment he speculates about what might be the purpose of Gollum in their journey. And he says this, he says, for even the very wise can't see all the ends, but my heart tells me that he has some part to play yet for good or ill before the end. That's how a Christian talks. They look and they say, yes, it's awful, it's terrible, and we do everything that we can to resist that. But my suspicion is God is going to weave this. The wisdom of Gandalf at that moment is the way Christians act because it's exactly what we see in the big picture of Acts. Look, the whole book began with Jesus telling his disciples that they were going to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Remember that? Well, Rome is, for an ancient Near Eastern people, the center of the whole known world at that time. So when Paul arrives at Rome, there's this air of, like, mission accomplished <laughs> hanging over his last few days. So what we see there is God has a plan in our chaos to help us understand it. But the plan in the suffering is to give us perspective that this is a battle, a battle that I'm racing in. And that brings me to the last point. What is God's plan, though, in the moment? 
We, we can look at God's plan in the midst of the great philosophical questions of evil and his intention. But in the real question, when we experience heartbreaking suffering, that what we want to know is like, God, what are you up to? What are you doing? Why is this happening to me? And what happens so often is when people get in the grips of those kinds of questions and that kind of heartbreak, they freeze. They draw up. And we lose our inability to even take one step forward, which is why I found it so fascinating to see what Paul was doing in the midst of his suffering. We've been through a lot in this church. Even in the last year, we've been through a lot. Nothing was compared to what Paul was doing. What was he busying himself with? Hmm. We'll take a look there at chapter 28, verse 23. It says, From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. All right. You ready to hear what it was that Paul did? You want to know what Paul's genius plan is to get through his suffering? You ready for this? Do what he's always been doing. (laughs) Keep doing what he's always been doing. His mission was, I don't know what I'm going to face. I don't know what trials are coming to me. But all I know is, I'm going to do exactly what I've been doing. I'm going to teach the Bible. I'm going to announce the kingdom. And I'm going to center it all on Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. That's the plan. It's always been the plan. (laughs) Martin Luther was once asked, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? You ever thought about that? What if you knew an angel told you Jesus is returning tomorrow? What would you do? Martin Luther goes, I think I'd go out and I'd plant a tree. What's the point? The point is I would do what I know he's called me to do already. Look, I love this because I do think that we live in a time where we so flatter ourselves. We say to ourselves, we live in unprecedented times. What will we do? How will we face the unknown? The world is secularizing around us. How will we make it through? I worry about this all the time. What does God have in store for Christ's prayers as a church in the coming decade? I don't know. Worries me a lot. Who knows what trials we'll face, what temptations we'll suffer, what heartbreak we'll be faced with. What will we do? Ready? Answer? We're going to do what we've always done. We're going to stand up and preach the gospel. We're going to point people to Jesus. And we're going to work to advance the kingdom in our little corner that God gave us to tend, that you and I call Oxford, Mississippi. And in the weirdest way, I find something strangely comforting in that that advice. Because one of the things that you find on this long list of, uh, of struggles that comes with suffering is that confusion about what to do next. I don't know what to do. Where do we go? What do we do? How do we handle this? The answer is we remain faithful, and we just go and do the next thing. Reminded me of one of my favorite stories from Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot was married to a missionary, Jim Elliot, and they decided they would go down to South America to witness to a group of indigenous people there and start an evangelistic work. Well, within months of their arrival, Jim uh, is brutally murdered by the very people he came to witness to. And Elizabeth Elliot talks about the days and weeks after his death with a newborn infant child, mind you. And she said, I was absolutely frozen, had no idea what to do, where to go, how to make sense of it. And a friend of hers gave her a poem. Let me read a couple of stanzas from this poem to you. It says, many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt has its quieting here. 
Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, and guidance are given. Fear not tomorrows, child of the king. Trust them with Jesus and do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand who placed it before you with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, neath, safe neath his wing. Leave all the results and do the next thing. Looking for Jesus ever serener, worse or working or suffering, be your demeanor. In his dear presence, the rest of his calm, the light of his countenance will be your psalm. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing. Then, as he beckons you, do the next thing. I absolutely love the wisdom of that. Where do I go? What do I do? How am I going to survive this? How can I survive this profound loss? How can I get up in the bed anymore with, with this crippling depression? Answer, go do the next thing. Sometimes, sometimes pain can be so crushing that the next thing is simply to breathe in and to breathe out. At other times, it's like maybe I'm going to go eat a meal. I'm going to go get some sleep. Maybe it's that I'm going to call some friends and pour my heart out to them. Maybe I need to set up an appointment with a counselor and talk through this. In other words, I'm going to do what I've always done. I'm going to stay faithful. And the whole book of Acts ends in Paul doing exactly what he set out to do so many years before. Look at the way the last two verses of this book ends. It says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Every commentator I read drew attention to the fact that the last Greek word in the book of Acts is the word unhindered. Because look, the title of this series, Jesus Continued, is not just Jesus Continued. It's Jesus Still Continued. He's still marching. He's still unhindered. And God's people look at the challenges and the sufferings of the present with the sure knowledge that God goes with them. And that all the way, he is taking all of the devil's schemes which we regularly pray against and work to overthrow. He takes and he weaves it into something that's going to be good for them. So that there will be a day where we look back on even the pain of our lives and say, it was a blessing. There was sweetness that came to me, even in the midst of that heartbreak. Maybe I'll get it in this life. Maybe not. But in the end, it's where it's all going. Another one from John Newton. He says, the lions roar, but they can't kill. Then fear not, my friends. They bring us, though against their will, the honey Jesus sends. That's what Christmas is about, by the way. Jesus being with his people, that no matter where we've been these last couple of years, no matter what God has allowed in his good providence to allow happen to us, no matter how many times we have sat questioning, God, what are you up to? His advent, his arriving, is this regular reminder for us that he has not left his people there with us, taking all of these disparate events, taking even my failures, and weaving them into something that will bring him glory eventually. That's a purpose. That's an encouragement, is it not? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us that eyesight, because so often we don't see it. Would you let us see very clearly what you are up to in our own hearts? Would we be able to see the plans of the devil and pray against them as you've instructed us to do everywhere? 
We pray that we would also have a perspective, Father, that would come alongside those who are frozen, who are stuck in life, and help them go and do the next thing, whatever it means for us to be faithful. Lord, we are so grateful for this journey through this wonderful book that you left your people, of seeing your church march through, of seeing you continue your ministry. And so now may you continue to do it, continue to do it in this place. May it be so. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.